Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. The FT. Welcome back to Energy Weekly with me, David Blair, stepping in for Sylvia Pfeiffer, who will be back next week. Three topics for you today. BP, nuclear power in Germany, and the oil cartel, OPEC. We're kicking off the show this week with a look at BP and how the company has been faring since the release of its report last week on the oil explosion of April the 20th. We'll be talking to our correspondent Sheila McNulty in Houston in a moment, who has been following the fallout closely, and then we'll take a quick look at BP's reputation closer to home, with the story we broke this morning in the Financial Times about safety lapses in the North Sea. The reporter responsible for that story will be joining us shortly to explain just what it's all about. And after that, we'll hear from our correspondent in Berlin, Gerrit Wiesmann, about Angela Merkel's announcement last week to extend the life of Germany's nuclear power plants. It's a divisive issue. Lots of Germans don't like nuclear power. Merkel's own cabinet was also divided over the length of the extensions. And lastly, we'll finish this week's show with a reflective look at oil cartel OPEC as it celebrates its 50th anniversary. I'm joined in the studio by Fiona Harvey, our environment correspondent, Javier Blas, our newly promoted commodities editor, and joining us on the line is Sheila McNulty, our US energy correspondent. Sheila, it's now been almost a week since BP released its internal report on the Macondo well accident. What has the reaction been in the US to that report? There's been quite a bit of a backlash on the report, mainly from the companies named in it, as well as the U.S. government and lawyers for the victims. The lawyers, we could imagine, would be upset, but the interesting thing has been even some of the U.S. congressional members coming out with uh, anger responses. Among them was Representative Edward Markey, chairman of the Energy and Environment Subcommittee, who came out with a notice saying, of BP's eight findings, they only take responsibility for half of them. So his quote was, BP is happy to slice up the blame as long as they get the smallest piece. And I think this really summed up the reaction from lawyers and Transocean and Halliburton, who also were given some responsibility in BP's report. So what next for BP in the U.S.? They're still trying to finish the relief well that is to seal the Macondo well for good. This has been delayed time and time again, but it looks like they're getting to the final stages And BP was given the go-ahead this week to actually complete it. So we may be able to say the Macondo well has been sealed forever and everybody moves along in just a matter of days. Is the industry as a whole learning any lessons from the accident? Actually, the industry is undergoing quite a bit of soul-searching. They don't say that they should have changed anything internally, but what they're saying now is do they want to partner with, with other companies because they see what has happened to BP's partners on this project. So the question is, do they want to be a minority partner with an operator where they're going to have to worry about every single step being taken, in which case what's the point of being a minority? Because the whole point of the relationship is you can trust the operator and uh, just sort of share in the rewards at the end of the, you know, when production comes. 
So there's quite a bit of soul-searching about who you'll be a minority partner with going forward, if you will be one. And also the smaller companies involved are saying, do we even want to be in the Gulf? They they really can't handle the liability now that they see how big it, it has been. Is this accident really going to lead to a lot of companies actually leaving the Gulf? We haven't seen any announcements, so this has been conjecture. But there are some really small companies operating out there. Some of them have just a handful of employees, and you know they they have they have had backers in the past. But I think even backers are getting skittish. So I think you will see see some sell-offs and um, and people leaving the Gulf. Thank you very much, Sheila. Joining us now is our reporter Cynthia Omerchu, who broke the story which got the front page on today's Financial Times about BP's safety lapses in the North Sea. Thank you for joining us, Cynthia. Tell us what the story is about. Well, essentially, the records of inspections um, of BP's platforms in the North Sea have showed that there's issues with training on the scene managers or on the scene responders have to do when they start working on a rig to make sure that that they can deal with an emergency situation in case of an oil spill or in a put what they call pollution event and when you look at these records quite often the inspectors say that the training has not been at all been conducted for particular employees or the the records that show that this training has been completed weren't available to the inspector, which really cast doubt on whether they were conducted or not. So what action will BP have to take as a result? Well, I think these issues with training and issues with not conducting the oil spill exercises as they're regulated, as they're demanded by the regulation, uh, will have to be addressed. I think that uh, there will be part of a discussion, I'm sure, in today's hearing uh, where Tony Hayward appears in front of the Parliamentary Select Committee. But it's important to stress that these are, you know, as, as the Department of Energy and Climate Change says, these inspections are carried out based on what the uh, companies themselves say they will do. So there is regulation as well as the company's own uh, what they call oil spill uh, uh, preparedness plans. Thank you very much, Cynthia. Let's move on to our second topic for today. Angela Merkel and her plans to extend the life of Germany's nuclear power stations by on average 12 years. The Chancellor announced the nuclear deal to the country's big four power companies last week to mixed reactions. Part of the deal is a commitment from the power companies to pay annually into a fund which will invest in renewable energy. Angela Merkel has said the deal will help Germany to become the most efficient and environmentally friendly country in the world. Fiona Simon caught up with the FT's correspondent in Berlin, Gerrit Wiesmann, earlier today, and she started off by asking him whether or not this deal is as good as Angela Merkel says for the renewable energy industry. Well, the renewables industry would, of course, tell you that it isn't. They're unhappy that the extension of nuclear power basically gives nuclear power more muscle for longer. This is, of course, true. But really... The genius part to this deal is that the government is going to siphon off some of the extra profits that the nuclear power operators are going to make through this, on average, 12-year extension and put this money into renewable energy. So there is money for renewable energy that there wasn't before. And this really, in the medium to long term, must be good for the renewable sector. And what kind of political coup is it for Merkel? And how will it affect her energy strategy that she is scheduled to unveil at the end of this month? 
Well, this is a very important deal. We've been waiting for this 11 months. It's a divisive issue. Lots of Germans don't like nuclear power. Merkel's own cabinet was also divided over the length of the extension. So this is very important for her politically. She's done something. She's shown us that her government can actually reach a deal that is quite sensible and that she can incorporate the opinions of various factions within her government and also within the party. It's important also as a basis for the comprehensive energy plan that she's been talking about for months. This was something that was belittled at first, really, and many people really took to be a smokescreen behind which to negotiate this, you know, quite contentious nuclear lifetime extension. But now that there's real money involved coming from the nuclear extension and flowing into renewable energy, people are waking up to the fact that this comprehensive energy plan might actually be quite comprehensive. Is it not the case that she might have to put the policy before the Bundesrat, where it might actually be voted down? This is the one question mark, and I'm sure this will be a bit of a a nail-biter. The government claims that uh, with a moderate extension, it doesn't need to put its bill before the upper chamber of parliament, the Bundesrat. There are plenty of lawyers working for the government. They seem quite confident that their opinion is correct. But of course, the courts will need to test what a moderate extension is. The government says 12 years on average is a moderate extension. The Social Democrats have already threatened to take the bill, put it before the constitutional court. I'm sure this will happen, and that will no doubt be a nail-biter. But knowing how governments operate and how many lawyers they have, I would be surprised if they get defeated uh, in the constitutional court. And if that happens, it would be uh, just an enormous um, embarrassment for this government. Does it free her up to pursue further policy goals? Yes, I mean, it it will free her up, if you like. She's ticked this box now. She's going to have to look to see whether the constitutional court agrees with her assessment of moderate extensions. But uh, I'm fairly confident that uh, they've done their homework on this in the government, and it will free her up to look at other things. I mean, she's put down a marker. She's shown people that she can do something and also do something which isn't just about extending nuclear energy lifetimes, which is something not particularly positive, but also to open up this whole renewables issue with the energy plan that will come at the end of the month. So I think this is an important step and one step towards the government really, you know, regaining some of the ground that it's lost over the past year. I mean, if we remember, it's it's really plummeted in the polls since uh, starting to rule 11 months ago now. That was Fiona Simon talking to Garrett Wiesman earlier today. Fiona Harvey, can I bring you in on this? How has this deal been received in the rest of Europe? Well, I think it's a very interesting deal because it shows us, one, how controversial uh, nuclear power is, uh, uh, particularly, uh, as as we just said, among the um, uh, renewable energy industry. But also it shows the absolute necessity that uh, in many parts of Europe for trying to continue the life of nuclear power stations beyond lifetime that was originally envisaged for them. Governments are having to to look at extending the life of of nuclear for a couple of reasons. One is nuclear is quite a a big source of uh, low-carbon energy in Europe. And of course, uh, there's a big emphasis on trying to hold down emissions. Every country has got a stiff emissions uh, target to meet. But another is that there's new legislation coming in from the European Union, the Large Combustion Plant Directive. And that is effectively going to mean that quite a few coal-fired power stations will have to be taken out of service. That will leave a big hole in energy supply uh, for these countries. 
And also, there, there has been a, a big delay in bringing forward new nuclear power stations um, in most countries. So uh, for Germany, you know, if Angela Merkel had decided to try and, and go for building new nuclear power plants, that would have been much more controversial um, as it is in, in lots of parts of Europe. So extending the life of existing power stations seems like a, a much safer option. Gerrit talks about an energy plan that the German government will introduce in September. Do we know anything about what will be in that plan? We can expect to see a lot more to do with renewables policy and emissions policy. Germany has been very supportive of its uh, renewables industry uh, for many years, but the problem with that is that it has been uh, very expensive and some people have complained that it hasn't really shown as much return uh, as they would have liked. So there might be some emphasis towards moving towards different uh, renewables. For instance, uh, Germany has some scope that it hasn't really explored yet to do offshore wind uh, because onshore wind has been... Uh, growing so much. There might be revisions to the way that domestic renewables such as solar panels uh, are subsidised. Thank you very much, Fiona. And to our final topic for today, the oil cartel OPEC. This week marks its 50th anniversary. Javier, could you tell us how has the power of OPEC varied over the last 50 years? Well, the first few years of OPEC after uh, the birth in 1960 were very, very difficult. Indeed, many people thought that it was just uh, a non-starter and it was going to be an organization that was not going to have any any meaning for the oil market. The the Financial Times himself, we we deteriorized 50 years ago, being very skeptical about the future of the cartel, and uh, obviously we were wrong. Uh, So the first 10 years were almost learning, but OPEC just reached the fame in in 1973 when, when the cartel used uh, basically overnight double the price of oil. And, and since then, OPEC has been a, a household name and some of his officials, particularly uh, Saudi officials such as Sheikh Yamani, who was a minister for almost 25 years, have become almost iconic. So the, the first 10 years were of learning. Then the, the period between 73 and, and 81 was the period of very high prices, two oil crisis, OPEC being at the center of the oil strategy. and uh, But also OPEC learned that his policy led to very low demand and then destruction of, of, of oil demand during the 80s. So again, the 80s and the 90s were very difficult periods for OPEC. And then the 2000, the new millennia, has been extraordinary for the cartel, helped by uh, a new understanding between the countries, an organization that is no longer as political as it was in the past, but more technocratic, more focused on the economics of oil, and less interested in trying to do policy and politics through oil. And and then, of course, the, the emergence of China, India, and other countries as big consumers has propelled oil prices and making the life of OPEC relatively easy. Why has it become less political? Why is the emphasis more now on policy and, and the, the technicalities? I think that there are two two big questions. First is, is a gentleman agreement between Iran and Saudi Arabia to resolve some of the issues on, on regarding oil policy between the two countries in 1999. And that gentleman agreement was critical on, on, on the Saudi side, Ali Naimi, the, the minister of oil, that is de facto the leader of, of OPEC. So w- when Iran and Saudi Arabia were able to remove those political problems 
uh, between them, they were able to focus more on on the technocratic point of view of OPEC on the oil economics. The other question is, I think that the countries uh, within OPEC and, and some of the the countries who have been more political in 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 the last ten years, particularly Venezuela, very quickly learned that you don't play with the business of oil because it's the main income of the country. So you want to do uh, politics, you will choose any other instrument, but not the one that is critical for the for the safety, the economic safety of the country. So they have been focusing more. Of course, on the technocratic side, of course, the fact that oil prices were high were also very helpful. At the end of the day, there were not internal political fights between the countries because at $80 oil or 75 or 150 they were in 2008. Everyone was very happy. It was not arguments between OPEC. But I think that there is an understanding within the countries that oil is for the business. And, and then when you want to do politics, you, you, you choose the, the, foreign, the foreign affairs ministry. You mentioned how this has been a, a recently, at least, an era of agreement between the two biggest players, Saudi Arabia and Iran. What could break that up? Is there a danger it might fall to bits? I think that the main danger for OPEC is precisely the country where the foundation of the cartel happened. It was in a conference in Baghdad on, on September the 14, 1960, where OPEC was, was founded. So I think Iraq they has used huge targets for increasing his oil supply over the next 10 years from about two and a half million barrels a day today, that is enough to supply a country such as France to about more than 10 million barrels a day. That is enough for China. So that's that's the kind of magnitude that Iraq wants to put onto the market. How OPEC deals with that, it's going to be critical for the cartel over the next 10 to, to 20 years. I mean, one question is, obviously, Iraq has a lot of plans on paper, but to bring 10 million barrels a day of oil production into the market, it is a very, very big number. The country has lots of political problems. It's, it's, it's safer now than it was three years ago, but it's not safe. And obviously, that's going to be a challenge. Also, it's technical challenge, financial challenges. So I don't think that Iraq is going to put as much oil as they are talking. So that will make the incorporation of Iraq back into OPEC easier. Thank you, Javier. That's all we have time for today. We'll be watching very closely to see what develops from the BP story in the North Sea. And Sylvia will be back with us next week. And all that's left for me is to thank my guests in the studio, Javier Blas, Fiona Harvey, Cynthia Omerchu, Fiona Simon, Sheila McNulty in Houston, and Garrett Wiesman in Berlin. Energy Weekly was produced by LJ Filatrani. Until next week, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellingcat.com.